2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to be beginning uh, in verse 4, but we're going to get a little bit of running start. We're going to begin this morning with a mystery. You guys aren't impressed. Um, <laughs> if, you've, if you've been with us in the second epistle to the Corinthians, Paul's second letter, you've heard me say more than once that Paul is defending himself in this letter from certain detractors. Have you heard me say that? Yeah? Maybe you've been wondering, who are these guys? Who are these mysterious guys? I mean, so far, they're only shadowy figures, people who seem to take every opportunity they can to malign Paul, to run him down in front of the Corinthians, saying things like, well, Paul's not a real apostle. I mean, he didn't spend three years with Jesus like the other guys did. Yeah. Saying things like, you can't even trust this guy to show up when you say he's going to show up. First Corinthians chapter 16, Paul said, I'm going to show up. For, uh, the first chapter of this letter, Paul says, it didn't work out. Sorry. These guys were exploiting a change of schedule in Paul's itinerary. And so we know, some of the things we know about these guys already is that they're opportunists and they're out to get Paul. But are there any other clues as to who these guys might be? Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 3. Paul says, Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or do we indeed, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? Paul's talking about a letter of recommendation that was common then, still common today sometimes. If you wanted to come speak at this pulpit, you would need a letter of recommendation from somebody that I knew or trusted, right? Um, so an educated guess here as another clue is that these, these uh, enemies of Paul, these nemeses, is that plural of nemesis? These nemeses went everywhere they went with letters of commendations, that they were proud of their ties to the influential, like Barney Fife with his badge and his gun, right? Now, just kind of lock that away. Paul responds to their need for a letter of commendation in verse 2. He says, you are, you are our epistle, written on our, in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ. You are my letter of commendation, Paul says. I don't need something written down on a piece of paper. I have thousands of you Corinthians whose lives have been changed. He says, I don't, I don't need those kind of things. And we're beginning to see here, as Paul is talking about these people that really needed to have um, these letters of, of uh, commendation, we see not only are they into exploiting their ties with the influential, the powerful, they're into running down Paul, exploiting any inconsistency in his story, but also it says that maybe they're into tablets of stone. Because look at verse 3, he says, Clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh. That is, of the heart. Now, their main claim is that Paul is insufficient, unworthy to be an apostle, that he doesn't have the right credentials. And Paul answers that charge as we come to verses 4, 5, and 6. Basically, concerning our sufficiency for the ministry, Paul says, verse 4, and we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, 
but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul here contrasts the ministry, he says, of the letter and the ministry of the Spirit. By when he says the ministry of the letter, he is referring to the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments that were written in stone, right? They were written on tablets of stone. So Paul now, in the rest of this chapter, begins to address legalism and legalism's uh, ministers, if you will. Finally, to me, it begins to make sense. The, the mystery is solved. This, who are these shadowy figures that are constantly running Paul down? They are the Judaizers. Boom, boom, boom. How many of you were with us in Galatians? You guys remember whenever you say, whenever you say Judaizers, that's probably what you're thinking. Boom, boom, boom. Matter of fact, I didn't get a lot of sleep last night, so to help keep me awake, whenever I say Judaizers, you guys go. All right, that'll work. If, you're, if you were with us in the, in the book of Galatians, you know about these Judaizers. Weak, weak. If, if Acts was a comic book and Paul was our hero, the Judaizers would, would be his arch enemies. They would literally, I'm not kidding you, they would follow Paul around from city to city, from town to town, and they would twist his words, they would muddle his work, and they would malign his character. In every town that Paul went to, pretty much, it would go something like this. Paul would walk into town, he would see before him a city of pagans. And he would say to them, Paul wasn't one to mince words, he would say, you guys are sinners. You desperately need a savior. His name is Jesus. He can set you free. He can secure your forgiveness with God. All you have to do is surrender your life to this man, this man who is God, named Jesus. It's a simple message. Powerful message. Hundreds, sometimes thousands of people would hear this simple message and they would turn over their lost lives they would begin a brand new life in Jesus. They would, he would see awesome works of God happening in the lives of the people, those towns that he went into. And then after he would leave, into town rode the Judaizers. They also claimed to be spreading the gospel. What we learned in Galatians, Paul called their... He says, if you want to call it a gospel, the word gospel means good news. It wasn't good news at all what these guys were spreading. Paul, they would walk into town and they'd be like, okay, Paul, you know, we know about Paul. I mean, when he says that, when he talks about Jesus, well, he's half right. They would say things like, well, Jesus is a really good start. But I mean, if you really want to be saved, you must also become a Jew. They say you need to start with these Ten Commandments written in tablets of stone. After that, take out everything that is not kosher in your diet. After that, keep the Sabbath to the point of exhaustion. There were 600 
some odd rules that the Pharisees, these were kind of like the Pharisees, the Christian version of the Pharisees, 600 some odd rules and regulations that a good Pharisee, a good Jew would need to keep. 365 of them were no, they were negatives. So you had one for every day of the year, something that not to do. And they would come and they would say, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this. And oh, by the way, we've scheduled your circumcision for 8 a.m. tomorrow. <laughs> Paul, Paul was always at odds with these guys. He was always at odds with them for the way they twisted the gospel, the way they turned really, really good news into really not so good news. And through the rest of this chapter, it makes total sense to me that these shadowy figures were the Judaizers. These were the types that we saw in Acts and Galatians that they would, this is what they would do. They would come into, into a town flashing their badge, their letters of commendation from the headquarters, from uh, Jerusalem. They would say, hey, we represent the big dogs in Jerusalem. Matter of fact, in Acts chapter 15, you don't need to turn there. You've got plenty of places to turn later. James has to say, he has to send a message to the church in Antioch and saying, just so you know, these guys don't represent us. Because they would go and they would uh, say that they're speaking for the leadership in Jerusalem. They would come in, they would pull rank, and they would begin to talk bad about Paul. No doubt in Corinth, they had a little bit new ammunition. No doubt it went this way. Look, if you can't trust this guy, Paul, with his own itinerary, are you sure you want to trust him with your eternal itinerary? So today, Paul is going to compare his gospel with their gospel. The old covenant with the new covenant. Look at verse 6. It says, who also, he's speaking of God, God made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The word covenant there, see it? We are ministers of the new covenant. The word covenant speaks of an arrangement made by one party who has all the power, which the other party may accept or reject, but cannot alter. When we hear the word testament, think of last will, uh, will and testament, right? If I make a testament, I say, this is what's going to go to these people. They can either accept it or reject it, but they can't tinker with it. That's what is happening here. Paul's talking about two covenants. The first, well, let me back up. At issue, at issue here on, on these two covenants is basically this question. And just this is my little aside for you. When I come to messages about the, the law and grace, it's tough for me because there is so much to cover to get some people up to speed. So I want to apologize for anybody who, oh, yeah, I've heard that before. But if you're like me, it's really good to hear these things again. But I feel like I'm going to need to go back and make sure that everybody's with us here. Um, if you guys were Jews... We'd be set. We could go right, you know, skip a whole bunch of pages here. But because you're not, at issue here is how is man justified before God? How does somebody like me get to stand in the presence of a holy God? How do you become okay with God? A holy and mighty God who never made a mistake, never sinned? 
How do you do that? The, it came down to two covenants. We'll call the first the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the Law of Moses. Now, the, the Judaizers wouldn't want to call it the Old Covenant. They'd say the original covenant. These, this covenant was written on tablets of stone, right? You guys know the scene. Moses is coming down from Mount Sinai. And by the time he arrives with the first set of the Ten Commandments, his countrymen have already broken the first two commandments. And he throws them down on the ground, right, shattering these things. He's the only guy to break all Ten Commandments at the same time. <laughs> so Moses goes back up the mountain. God patiently gives these Ten Commandments again. This time, though, with a provision of an animal sacrifice. Meaning, apparently, these guys can't really, you know, keep this. So what we'll do is we'll make a way that they can be justified before a holy God through the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, the Bible says, there is no remission, no forgiveness. It's not okay with God. There is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. That's the first covenant, as quickly as I know how to say it. That's the old covenant, the original covenant. Now, as for the new covenant, where do we find that? The, the covenant that Paul is referring to here, turn with me to Matthew 26. And you will see the new covenant Paul's talking about. Matthew 26, verse 26, a very familiar scene. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take Eat. This is my body. This represents my body. Verse 27. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant. You see it? My blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for what? The remission of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. This is the new covenant. Jesus said, now I, we begin a new testament. You can't alter it. You can't change it. You can't tinker with it. Here it is. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Jesus was saying, here is my blood. Let, please let me sacrifice my blood on your behalf. My blood is perfect and you are sinful. Please accept my blood on your behalf. So those are the two covenants. Now the Judaizers, when they walked in, they would say... But Paul, you tell me that God changed his mind? I mean, you're saying that this old covenant is like expired? Paul was saying, no, the old covenant has not by any means expired. Jesus said, matter of fact, he said, um, no jot or tittle will be removed from the law. Basically, what he's saying is even a dot of an I or a cross of a T, none of it's going to be removed. Until all is fulfilled. Paul would say, the old covenant was not expired. It is fulfilled. Jesus came and lived a perfect life and he died in my place, the perfect lamb. The, the best way that this, this made sense to me the first time I got it was to think of righteousness as a glass. And God says to, to be with me, you need to have that glass completely full. And pfft, I got like a couple drops maybe in my glass. But Jesus comes and he fulfills 
that covenant. He fulfills everything that's required so that I can have fellowship with the Holy God. Paul would say it's not that the law, the original covenant was bad. He said, no, actually, the original covenant was good. But, but we're going to see as he, as he goes through here, but compare it to the new covenant. The first covenant was the focus of the Judaizers. The message, the ministry, the focus of the Judaizers was the first covenant. The new covenant, which is God's righteousness given to us by faith in Jesus, was the focus of Paul. All right, once again, to help, if no one else, help keep me awake. We're going to do something different today. You guys are like, man, there's always something different. I'm going to read and I'm going to pause and I'm going to cut you down in the middle right here. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Pick one or the other. Over here, the left. Sorry, you guys are the Judaizers. Okay. <laughs> Good. Over here on the right, you guys get to be in Paul's camp. All right. I want you to notice the, the first thing that we see. <laughs> first, first thing that we see is that the, uh, the Old Covenant comes first in, in every sentence. The Old Covenant. And, and what it means is the first thing. So it's easy. You guys can track this easy. The left side, you guys will always be the first ones to talk. On the right, you will be the second. All right? We're going to see what the, what the letter does, what the uh, law does, versus what the Spirit, the ministry of the Spirit does. All right, you guys ready? Verse 6. I'll, I'll cue you. God has made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter. Wow. (laughs) Not, not of the letter, but not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter kills, but the spirit, but if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was. So that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. How will the ministry of the spirit not be? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is was glorious, then is much more glorious. All right. Now, first notice. First notice how Paul characterizes the Judaizers, you guys. He says, look, their gospel kills. They have a ministry of death, a ministry of condemnation. Hi, I'm the minister of death. This is my associate pastor, the minister of condemnation. He says the thing they are preaching is passing away. On the other hand, Paul says that his gospel, what gives life, his is the ministry of the Spirit, it's the ministry of righteousness. It has even more glory than the first covenant, which had glory, and it is a glory that remains. See, the old covenant was indeed a ministry of death. It's interesting when you, whenever you see a picture of Moses and the Ten Commandments, we don't know how it looked, but usually you'll see it looks like two tombstones. The ministry of the Old Covenant was death. <laughs> Number one for the, the goat or the bull or the ram, right? But also 
all of the rules, the regulations, by their nature, bring about death. A hotel near a lake had signs posted, said no fishing on the balcony. You see where this is going? <laughs> Every day there were more and more people fishing off the balcony. Till one smart manager said, let's take the signs down. They never had another problem. If you were to see a sign that said, don't look behind this sign, what would you want to do? It's our nature when there are rules to test them, to break them. Rules, regulations introduced the ministry of death. Now, in case you're worried, I'm, I'm not talking bad about the law. We'll see here in a second. Death came into the world through Adam. Remember, God said, look, you can eat of any tree, just not that one. And you remember how it turned out. And if, it, if that wasn't bad enough, when Jesus came, he said, look, if, um, if the Ten Commandments say, don't murder, if you're angry with your brother, it's as though you have murdered him. Now, this is a good time to explain that Paul is not talking bad about the Old Covenant. He's not talking bad about the Ten Commandments. The, he's not saying that the Mosaic Law is bad. Now, maybe some of you are thinking, you could have fooled me. The ministry of death, the ministry of condemnation, that sounds pretty bad. I hate to admit this, but when I was a kid, I watched Hee Haw. I don't know why my parents let me, but they did. If any of you have seen that show, there's a, a scene in a barbershop where the guy says, um, he, he, it's a, he tells a story and then he says, that his friend says, oh, that's bad. He goes, no, that's good. And he explains why it's good. And then the guy goes, oh, that is good. No, that's bad. And it, goes, it, it would go something like this. I met an old friend yesterday. And the guy in the barber chair would say, well, that's good. No, no, that's bad. It was at his funeral. Oh, that is bad. No, that's good. It was just a dress rehearsal. Oh, that's good. No, that's bad. See, he's only got a week to live. That's how it went. But better. When Paul says the letter kills and the old covenant, when he talks about the old covenant is the ministry of death, we go, oh, that's bad. But Paul would say, no, that's good. Turn with me to Romans 6. Romans chapter 6, Paul shows us where death is good. Romans chapter 6, verse 5, we, we read this at the baptism just a, a couple of weeks ago. Romans chapter 6, verse 5, For if we have been united together in the likeness of His, Jesus' death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Look at this. For he who has died has been freed from sin. That's good. See, the old covenant, the Mosaic law, was the ministry of death. That's bad. No, that's good. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Again, I feel like I'm rehashing for some of you, but in Galatians, it talked about how the law, the Old Testament, when you look at all of the things in the Old Testament and you go... How could I ever do that? How, why, why can't I? In Romans 7, 
Paul talks about, why can't I do the things that I want to do? And I don't, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I want to do. All of that, Paul says, is good because it leads you to one conclusion. I can't do it. I cannot do it. Paul talks about the law as a schoolmaster, a, a taskmaster to drive you to Jesus. So Paul is not talking bad about the law, and neither am I about the old covenant. It's just that the new covenant is much better. Look at verse 7. Back with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 7. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? There's no denying the law, the first covenant, was a glorious thing, is a glorious thing. You, you could surmise that, and that, this is the point that they're making, the, uh, the Judaizers. The point that they're making is that this is a glorious thing. They're kind of like, Paul, why are you messing with this? This is a glorious thing. Think about how it was presented. Moses spent 40 days working on these tablets with God in the presence of God. He came back. They blew it. He went back 40 more days. The Bible says he didn't eat or drink anything in 80 days. How would you look after 80 days of eating, not eating or drinking? <laughs> when they next laid eyes on, on Moses, he wasn't emaciated. He didn't look like death. He was glowing, the Bible says. Not like, you know, a woman in love. <laughs> I mean, he was glowing like a neon sign. Turn with me to Exodus 34. Exodus 34, we see the scene that they're talking about here. Exodus 34, verse 29. This is the second time. Now it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with them. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them as commandments all that the Lord had spoken with them on Mount Sinai. This is a glorious thing. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. You're going to want to remember that, especially next week. Um, verse 34, but when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out. And he would come out and speak to the children of Israel whatever he had been commanded. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. Okay? So, basically, the Judaizers would come in and they'd say, read Exodus 34. Let's see your new covenant do that. They're talking about this glory with which the old covenant was brought forth. Well, Paul's going to really nail that down next week in verse 13. If I took you to verse 13 at this rate, we'd be here all day. So you have to come back, okay? Everybody promise you come back? Um, if Paul says if something could, that we could call the ministry of death is glorious, verse 8, now 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 8, 
How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. This is a bit of a restatement. Paul is saying it again in a different way, but there's some great new insights here. He says, instead of the ministry of death, he graduates to the ministry of condemnation. Maybe you guys know some people with that ministry. The ministry of condemnation. Where nothing you do measures up. They're really good at making you feel small, like you, like you could never measure up. That's what the law does. It condemns you. It's a good thing in the long term, right? It condemns you. You can't measure up. The law is really good at making you and I feel insufficient, unworthy, unrighteous. That's bad? No. That's good. The law says you are insufficient. You're unworthy. You are unrighteous. You need a Savior. But the new covenant, Paul calls what? The ministry of righteousness. What that means is that in the new covenant, God actually makes you righteous. He doesn't just show you this is what righteousness looks like. Now, good luck with it. He makes you righteous. He declares you righteous in a legal sense because Jesus paid the price. But he also helps you want to be righteous. And we're going to see in in verse 13 when we get there that we are working steadily, steadily toward the righteousness that we already have in Jesus. And we want to because we are forgiven. Ray Steadman told a story, a true story, an anecdote about a a boy that he knew, a teenager. He grew up, or he, he woke up one morning and said, you know what, I am so thankful for my dad. I just want to, I want to bless him. I think I'm going to mow the lawn today and I'm going to uh, wash the car, wash his car, just to bless him, to be thankful for, for all he's done. And he said, at breakfast, his dad came out and said, son, I want you to mow the lawn and I want you to wash the car. Now, don't, don't blow this. Make sure that this is done when I get back. He, and the story goes, the son, he did it, but he was robbed of all of the joy of it. It wasn't done from love. It was done out of obligation. See, the key is found in a personal relationship, right? The person of Jesus, not rules, but relationship. If you want to be righteous, if I want to be righteous, what we really need is a person. Not a rule, not a whole bunch of rules, but a relationship. If, for instance, when you see a speed limit sign that says 55, does it make you go 55? Nobody? (laughs) But when there's a person in a uniform, in a car, (laughs) driving down the road with you, Suddenly, you're righteous. (laughs) Righteousness is not found in the rules. It's found in the relationship. The rules aren't bad. The rules are good. But the function that they serve is to show you how desperate you are, how desperate I am for 
that relationship. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect, because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. I want to come back to that in just a minute. Let's go to verse 12. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. It just struck me there. That's the effect of forgiveness. When you're really forgiven, you're bold. You, you actually have power to do the things you want to do, to, to be bold. The effect of forgiveness, of complete cleansing, is boldness. The Bible says we are able to come boldly into the throne room of God, not because we're good, but because Jesus made us righteous. Look at verse 13. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. We started this morning with the mystery. Got that one solved. For me, did you notice there's, there's a mystery here that Paul clears up. Why did Moses put the veil on his face? The first impression is, as you read through it, it's like, oh, they were, they were scared. So he, he put the veil on his face to protect them from being scared of, of this, right? Or to protect them from the brightness of his glory. It wasn't that Moses was protecting the children of Israel from his glowing face. Did you see it? End of verse 13. It's that he didn't want to have them see that it was fading. Do you see that? Let's read. uh, You don't have to turn there, but Exodus 34, if you still have it, you can. Let me read that account to you again. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them. It doesn't say that he he put a, a veil on yet. He called to them and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him. And Moses talked with them. Afterwards, all the children of Israel came near. He still hasn't put a veil on. And he gave them as commandments all that the Lord had spoken with them on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off. Get a good suntan, right? And he would come out and speak to the children of Israel whatever he had been commanded. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, so that he, saw, he showed them. That, that his face shone. And then it says afterwards, he put the veil back on. Do you get it? It wasn't that the, the, the glowing face was too much for them. What, what was happening was, he's like, you know what? I really don't want them to have the psychological damage of seeing the glowing fade. Go back with me. If you, if you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, as we're going to wrap up here fairly soon. Verse 10, for even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. Paul says, it's not that the first covenant is dim, is not good. He says it's good, it's glorious. It's that the new covenant is so bright by comparison. It's like the light of the moon that's reflected, right? Look at it at night and man, that's beautiful. It's glorious. It's bright. But then when the sun comes up, you kind of forget about the moon, don't you? The, the brightness of the sun completely makes you forget all about the brightness of the moon. It's not that one is bad. They're both great. But the sun is so much more 
Verse 11, he says, For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. I want to leave you with one more thought. Do we have an illustration? Since, since the Judaizers... You guys are pretty good. Since the Judaizers... <laughs> you got me. Since those guys... Made the big deal about, look, it's the, the glory is here, right? Do we have a, a parallel picture of the new covenant? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17. Does yours begin this way? Verse 1. Now after six days. Yes? Now after six days. Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Interesting that in this illustration, Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets. The law and the prophets. Look at verse 5. While he was still speaking, while Peter was busy putting his foot in his mouth, while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. God had to interrupt Peter and say, not three tabernacles. Only focus on him, on Jesus. Look at verse 6. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. There it is, the, the whole message wrapped up into two words. Jesus only. The Judaizers would say, look, Jesus is a good start, but you need to add all these things. You need to add your own righteousness. You need to add the circumcision. You need to add this. You need to add that. The message is Jesus only. His face was bright, shining bright as the sun. His clothes were as white as light. This was not, by the way, a temporary putting on of glory by Jesus. This was a temporary him taking off the flesh of man and showing the glory that remains. Do you get it? This is a glory that surpasses, that does not fade. Jesus only. That's how Paul lived his life. That was his whole message, his whole ministry, his whole focus that's why he did so many wonderful things. It was because all he thought of was Jesus 